Good morning, everybody. Um, so in keeping with our practice and our spiritual practice of giving, um, we're going to, just like we did last week, do a special liturgy um, to spend some time um, thinking on that practice and focusing on that practice. Um, so we have a liturgy this morning. Holy Father, there is nothing that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the world, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show that you what you are like to all the world. Amen. morning. Our central text today is found in Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. My name is Chaz. If you're wondering who that handsome kid was earlier playing worship, that's my boy. And he got eighth place at the race the other day, too. He beat everybody else's kid in here, for the record, too. Say, so, <laughs> okay. I was meant to, it's humor, it's humor, it's humor. And now he's, he's, you're welcome. Uh, he's crawling under a rock now. I, okay. We'll talk about humility next week, okay? That's the sermon next week. Um, I read another review this week on what is now the top-earning film of the year, and believe it or not, one of the top all-time earning films ever in history. Barbie, yes, Barbie. Uh, I have not seen it, but I do think it, it begs the question, what does it say when people are flocking to see this film? I know there's a lot of nostalgia, I'm sure. 
I didn't play with Barbies other than to bowl their heads off of my sisters, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of nostalgia, and I know it takes up a lot of uh, hot topic button issues culturally, like gender roles especially, but I, the review I read this week was stunning because you realize this isn't a cultural issue. This isn't a hot topic issue that's brought up. The movie talks about death. So Barbie is uh, the main protagonist, uh, is at a party. The main Barbie is at a party with other parties there in Barbie land, the picturesque town by the sea. Is everybody following so far, okay? Um, she's at a party, and out of nowhere, there's this dance party going on. She says, do you guys ever think about death? And it stops everybody in their tracks. They don't think she's serious. Why? When everything's happy in Barbie land, what good is that conversation? And you know what? Truth is stranger than fiction. Because whether, you know, you see that, but the reality is if any of us go to our friends today and ask the question, do you ever think about dying? Your friends will look at you like you're absolutely crazy. Benjamin Franklin once said, uh, nothing is more certain than death and taxes, but the truth is we're far more certain about taxes, aren't we? We give way more attention and anxiety and thought to our taxes and very little to our actual physical death. And why? Because why would we want to think about something so morbid? But ancients and the generations before us, they thought otherwise, and they didn't have a choice. It was normative that somebody, probably one or two of your siblings, would literally die, and they wouldn't just die in the confines of a compassionate hospice home. It was in your home. You had to talk about death. We, on the other hand, prefer never to give such thought to such morbidity because we think that death is the end. The end of the line, the end of the journey. Death just strips life of all meaning. And I'm not just talking about those who don't hold to a Christian worldview. I'm talking about the vast majority of Christians who hold to death and resurrection and recite creeds of life everlasting. Let me ask you a serious question. When was the last time you seriously thought about your own death. When was the last time? The one who wrote this article, her name is Brittany Schultz. She said, how could being reminded of the inevitability of your own death ever be a good thing? But memento memoria, which is a Latin phrase that means remember we must die, it's not morbid for morbidity's sake. Remembering our death is meant to remind us to live. When we keep in mind that someday our lives will come to an end, we can find gratitude for the present, even in suffering. We can decide how we actually want to live. Because remembering our death brings depth to our lives. We lose some of our illusions. But the paradox of being human is that joy is sweeter when we also know suffering and grief. We're in a series. This is our third week, and it's called Defiant Joy. Because there's a possibility in this life, friends, that there's a joy that exists for all of us that is present in the face of even death. There's a joy that can be ours in this life that is present in grief and in suffering and the most trying of circumstances. How can we actually do that? We're spending all fall trying to do that. And this week, what does it mean to live defiantly in the face of death, to actually truly live? Here's our three points. Remember, must, you must die. Two, a desire greater than death and remember you must live. Remember, you must die. A desire greater than death and remember, you must live. So let's look at the first point. Now, if you've been in and out, uh, the book of Philippians, it's a thank you note. 
okay? I can't stand writing thank you notes. It takes forever to do that. I just want to thank you for this. But Apostle Paul writes four chapters of a thank you note because he's in prison. And he's in prison, uh, we don't know exactly where it is, but, you know, Roman, uh, in the the Roman Empire, to be in prison meant there was no ACLU looking out for your rights, okay? There was nobody advocating for rights of prisoners. So if you didn't have friends from the outside giving you water or food or any of these things that you would die, well, the church in Philippi, what they did is they sent somebody over there to Paul, wherever he was, and gave him, you know, provisions. But the reality, one of the things we've been saying throughout this is that the conditions within this prison, I mean, all of us here would just wilt under these conditions. They were brutal. Uh, They were harsh. And it's kind of place that if you and I were there, we would just literally, probably on day one, abandon all hope. All hope. And here he is. There's a remarkable thing that we don't really see that happens until this week, that the Apostle Paul's not just incarcerated in these really rough conditions, but the Apostle Paul is a man on death row. Think about that for a second. The New Testament writer, and he's a man on death row. Uh, when you're on death row... There's no more false solutions. I mean, if you're on death row, not that I've ever been there and don't plan to be, what you, you're surrounded by death. You're living in the part of the prison that's about death. The apostle Paul is waiting trial for potentially his execution, and that's what everybody thinks is going to happen, and he's there. And the reality is we don't know much about life you know, on death row. I mean, I, I'm sure some of you watched that 1999 film with uh, Susan Sarandon, Dead Man Walking, but... We don't, what would that be like? I mean, what, what, if you're on death row, what are you thinking about all day? You know, what are you ruminating on? In fact, the New York Times wrote an article uh, just last week about this. And one of the things that the person who's studied this for years, she said, you know, to cope with the isolation they face daily, and these are folks on, you know, death row and of all places, Texas. That's like the, probably the last place you want to be on death row. But here she is. She's studying. She said, to cope with the isolation they face, the men on death row spend a lot of their time in search of escape, something to ease the racing thoughts or the crushing regrets. Some read books. Some find religion. Some play games like Scrabble or Jailhouse Chess. Some turn to Dungeons and Dragons where they can feel a small sense of freedom they've left behind. But you read that. What do people do? They're just looking for escapism, something to help this anxiety that I don't have to think about the inevitability of what's coming. And when you come to the Apostle Paul, you look at this word and he says, my deliverance. And there's a part of me, when you first read that, you you look and you think, the Apostle Paul's talking about, he's, he's setting his hopes on this thing that might turn out for his favor, a stay on his execution, or maybe a release. I mean, after all, he's got all these people praying for him. And if you know anything about uh, the church in Philippi, that if you read Acts 16, Paul did experience a miraculous jailbreak. That's how the church actually started. There was an earthquake. And after that, the church gets started. Paul's got that miracle in his bank. He's also got all these people praying for him. They need him. The church needs him to continue. He's the one who started it. Surely he's getting out. But this is where, and it might feel a little semantic, so just stay with me for a minute, okay? You with me? Or did I lose you at Barbie? Okay, I don't know. (laughs) All right. This word, the Greek word here actually, is the Greek word soteria, and that's the literal word for salvation. Uh, 
Paul is not talking here. He's sitting in the face of all these conditions. He's a man on death row, and he's not sitting here ruminating on getting out or a verdict that might come in his favor. The Apostle Paul is sitting there in prison, and all of a sudden his thoughts are taken captive about salvation and what happened in his life. And yes, we'll look at it in the second point. He's talking about a salvation that can stand up to death. Now, it's not swallowed by it. But Paul is sitting here in prison, and all of a sudden he's realizing Everybody wants him out. And he's sitting here saying, do you understand what's happened in my life? I've already been rescued. I'm, already, I'm free already because of what Christ did in my life. Let me let Darth Vader explain this to us a little better. Do you remember the end of Return of the Jedi? Right at the end of the Return of the Jedi, before Disney ruined everything a couple years ago, uh, is it's the end of the saga. And throughout the saga, Luke Skywalker, the whole time, he's trying to save his father. The whole time, he believes he can be saved from the dark side. And, you know, so here they are at the end, and Luke is summoned to fight by the emperor, his own father, Darth Vader. And he refuses to fight. And do you remember what happens next? The emperor starts shocking Luke, okay? And Luke is now on the ground, and he's writhing in pain, and he's, he's crying out to his father, Darth Vader, to save him. Okay, and when this happened when I was a child, I mean, my jaw dropped about what happened next. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Darth Vader, this evil villainous figure, turns, and he essentially turns away from the dark side. And he picks up the emperor, and he throws him down the pit, and he's destroyed forever until Disney resurrected him. But anyway, he's killed, and it's a morbid, it's a mortal wound to him. And so as they're trying to escape the Death Star before it blows up, Okay, I know there's a lot of details here. You might have to go back and watch Star Wars again this week. But he's holding, he's picking up his father. And he's trying to get out of the Death Star. And they fall to the ground. And his father lays down. And he says to Luke, leave me. And Luke says to him, no, we've got to get you out of here. We've got to rescue you. And he says to him, you already have, Luke. You already have. I guess that wasn't the illustration that was riveting as I thought when I first wrote it. But, uh, <laughs> you know. Tell your sister you are right about me. Um, that's what he's saying. He's saying, the church in Philippi are saying, we've got to rescue you. And he's saying, no, I've already been rescued. So if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, here's a man who literally was a Vader figure. He spent his whole life consumed with hate. His name was Silas, and he spent his whole life chasing down, hunting down, murdering Christians, trying to get them because he hated them. His whole life was consumed with self-righteousness. Everything's orbiting around his hate. And do you know, if you live like that, if you live consumed with needing to be right, always on top, winning every argument and hating your enemies, do you know how exhausting that kind of life is? It's exhausting. And he's saying, look, I don't, I'm getting ready to potentially face death I might be released, or I might stay, and I want you to know I'm already free because I've been saved from that. But you see, when we talk about remember your death, remember your death, we're not just talking about physical death. See, Jesus says in order to actually know life, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it 
for eternal life. And I know that these are very, very strong words, whoever hates this life. And to be clear, Jesus is not saying you got to hate life and be miserable and there's, there's no joy in life. But the point is, what he's saying there is that in order to have new life and new creation, in order to actually be a Christian, in order to actually look at physical death and call it sleep and not be intimidated by his understanding, you've already gone through a real death. You have to. In order to become a Christian, something's got to go into the ground. And it's that old man, it's that thing inside us. It's our sin which dominated and controlled us that we need to be rescued from, and Jesus killed it. In order that you could be raised to new life like he was, that's the paradigm. Paul is sitting here in prison, and he's not saying, I hate my life and I just want to get out of here. I'm miserable, I'm scared. Paul is saying, I can face and stand up to all these things because I have undergone the death that really needs to happen. That has truly brought new life into my life. Paul, if you and I could visit him in prison, you would see a man sitting there with a Cheshire grin on his face. I don't know if you've seen, I'm sure you've heard me mention Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dufresne comes out of solitary confinement and he's been listening to Mr. Mozart in his heart and his mind and people are blown away that he's this joyful. He says, I had him with me the whole time. Paul, if you could see his face in this prison, in the face of everything that would crush us, and he's rejoicing. He's in chains, he's malnourished, he's unjustly incarcerated, he is awaiting a verdict, and he is rejoiced because he knows, he's convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He knows this is true. He knows that the good that Jesus has been working in his life, which did bring death to him, and has brought hard things to his life is for this ultimate good, which is salvation. And he's working it out in the face of all these things. Nabil Qureshi uh, wrote this great book. He passed away, unfortunately, in 2017, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I'm not going to read all of this, but he, he said this. He said, Jesus did not pay the penalty for a misdeed so we can continue disobeying God with abandon. Rather, in dying on the cross, Jesus not only canceled our spiritual debt, but he also cured our spiritual disease. Do you hear that? Paul is saying, I'm rejoicing because this disease has, that was ravaging my life and is ravaging all of ours, it was cut down and killed. Let's turn the bin and go a little quicker here as we round the bin on the second and third point. So I wasn't aware of this until recently, but um, until this year, the, the origins behind the, uh, the Nike phrase, just do it. Apparently in the late 80s, um, you know, they had Michael Jordan at this point. They had, you know, the original Jordans. They had the swoosh. They had a great market share, but they just needed a catchphrase, and they didn't have it. So they reached out to this ad agency about it. And now the backstory apparently is one of the ad, you know, executives remembered reading this story about this man in Utah who was on death row. And here he is. He's getting ready to face a firing squad. And as I say, bring this man out, he looked at the firing squad, and he says, you know, let's do it. And he shot down. And, I, you know, they changed the guy wrote. He said, I remember when I was reading that, I was like, well, that's amazing. I mean, in the face of that much uncertainty, how do you push through that? But I didn't like the let's thing, so I just changed it because otherwise I have to give him credit. <laughs> but when I hear just do it, you know, I hear just get it over with. 
Like, get me out of here. Get it on. I'm done. Just get out of here. Right? When Paul says here, to die is gain, he's not just saying, let's just get this over with. Get me out of here. Escapism. I want out. The Apostle Paul is prepared to really live. He's prepared to share the gospel in the prison. He is prepared to get out of prison and share the gospel. He is prepared to face death. He's prepared for anything. And how in the face of all these things is he able to do this? There's a rare Greek word that occurs here again, and this will be the last one we mention. It's this word eager expectation, and believe it or not, it literally only occurs here and in Romans 8. And we actually studied this a couple weeks ago. In fact, I'm going to read the Romans 8 passage. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This word literally means anxious and persistent desire. Anxious and persistent desire. Paul is sitting here in prison, and he's reflecting on the reality of all that salvation truly means. To him presently, his life being rescued from his hate but also the future implications of this. And in the face of the fact that here's a man whose most earnest desire, that his fixation, every thought that he has in his life right now is fixated on Christ. He can stand up to trial. He can stand up to execution. He can stand up to being released. Any verdict. And here he is with this courageous attitude. And one of the dangers about talking so much about the Apostle Paul uh, which is hard not to in this incredible circumstances that he's in jail. But it's, it's tempting that we can want to hold up the Apostle Paul as this moral example of courage. But you've got to understand something. Paul's not cut from any other different cloth than you and I are. This is man has courageous hope. Because this is a man who's holding on to the fact that what Jesus did, if he really did resurrect from the grave then death itself is an infinite gain for the Christian. That you can face anything. The reason you and I don't want to talk about death or want to hear about it is because you and I know the thing that we most fear about death, it's total loss. It's total loss. It's annihilation. That is what we fear. We fear and we know that at the end of the day, death does this thing and it's irreversible. It strips you of everything that you love, everyone you love, every place you have ever loved. And it just, it hangs over us and it, it bullies us and it intimidates us. It's what we fear most more than anything else. It's not the actual process of death. It's the loss of love that it could potentially mean for us forever. Tim Keller wrote this in 2020. He said, most people, modern people, write and talk endlessly about love, especially romantic love, which eludes many, but no one can avoid death. It's been said that all the wars and plagues have never raised the death toll. It it has always been one for each and every other person. Yet we seem far less prepared for it than our ancestors. Rather than living in fear of death, we should see death as spiritual smelling salts that will awaken us out of our false belief that we will live forever. So when you're at a funeral, especially one for a friend or a loved one, listen to God speaking to you, telling you that everything in life is temporary except for his love. This is reality. Because it's in death that God says, 
if I'm not your security, then you've got no security because I'm the only thing that can't be taken away from you. I will hold you in my everlasting arms. Every other set of arms will fail you, but I will never fail you. Smelling salts, smelling salts are very disagreeable, but they're effective. But as you're waking from your illusions, be at peace, because here's what Jesus Christ offers to us, if by faith we have him as our Savior. In 2017, my really good friend, Travis Johnson, uh, wanted to spell me up here from the pulpit. Give me a break. He was insisting, uh, though he had a full-time job and had a lot on his plate, that he come up here and give me a break and preach. And, you know, often it's the case when and there's a new preacher, you know, you got to tell who you are, you know, in the beginning. People don't know who you are, at least half of the people, especially visitors. So, uh, Travis, if anybody was here at that time, you may remember, Travis spent the first five minutes uh, really just showing pictures of his family. It was awesome. I mean, every single kid he showed a picture of, and then, of course, he talked about his wife, Amy. And then in the six-minute mark, Travis looked out, and he asked this question, who am I? And in that gap, that brief little gap after that, sin, that question is asked, I want you to know what he could have said. He could have said, I'm Tr Dr. Travis Dwayne Johnson. I'm the 1994 valedictorian of my high school. I earned degrees from Furman University, the Medical University of South Carolina, a Master of Public Health degree at Harvard University. I'm a doctor, I'm chief resident. I was a team leader of my missionary team. I'm the founder of the Believe Child Advocacy Center. I'm the founder of the Master of Public Health program at the University of North Carolina. I once completed a 100-mile bike ride while on immunotherapy, stopping only once to assist a fallen rider. I completed a half marathon while on chemotherapy, stopping three times to be sick. But instead, this is what he said. I am someone who loves Jesus, and I love him deeply. I am a man who has received great mercy from our Lord. I'm a man who has a Father in heaven who loves me deeply. I believe in the promises of God. In February of 2020, Travis lost his eight-year battle with cancer. In the days leading up to his death, he sent out this message to his friends, his family, and to his church here. He said, dearest friends, we wait patiently for our Lord. Always expectant. Always seeing his goodness. Always thankful. He's coming to make all things new. And until then, we take courage to love each other and bet our life that Jesus is here with us. He knows our names. Yeshua, Savior, our Deliverer. The Spirit comforts us, and the great cosmic story continues to be written with love by the Father who is called love. There is so much more to this creation that we can now see. We move forward for his namesake. The joy of this life here and the great expectations of what's next. And I'm so thankful for the season I've had with each of you and the joy you brought me, my love to each of you, my deepest love and all my heart. And when I got those words, I was struck and so proud 
but struck how brazenly confident that was. It was almost like he was saying, friends, this is just a temporary parting. I'll see you very soon, but I have somewhere to go right now. How can you say such things when it's coming like this? When it means a loss of everything? The only way you could ever do something like that and say it is when your apocardia, your earnest, most persistent and anxious desire is this. I am someone who loves Jesus and I love him deeply. If you have that, you have a desire that is literally greater than physical death itself. You have something that can stand up to anything, divorce, sickness, illness, financial ruin, reputation destruction. That's what you have. Dallas Willard once said this. He said, once we have grasped our situation in God's full world, the startling disregard Jesus and the New Testament writers had for physical death suddenly makes sense. That's why you see Jesus Christ walk into rooms and people are weeping and crying, and he says, she's just sleeping. It's why all the New Testament writers, when they talk about death, they just use the word sleep. Because if you have this, if you have this salvation, then you have not naivety, you have revolution. That's what you have. There's just, I'm going to finish the point here, the last point. Paul's love and intimacy with Christ shows that here he is in the face of death, and he's got this stunning indifference to it. It's like he just very much is looking at death and saying, okay, that's cute, neat. <laughs> For him, what is amazing is he's sitting here talking about death, everything that's happening, and the words that are coming in mouth are saying, do you want to know what the hardest choice for me right now? It's actually to stay. It's to stay on earth. Wow, even release. Even if he's free, he's saying, do you know what the harder choice is? Because you know what was the better choice? I've experienced such intimacy with Jesus Christ right here in these prison walls. And I want to tell you, if I could experience this level right here in the face of everything we just talked about, can you even begin to fathom what it would be like to see him face to face in the fullness of the kingdom? That's what he's saying. He's saying, if I can experience something this real, a joy this defiant, this hopeful, right here, right now, I cannot even begin to fathom what it would literally be like to jump into his arms. Paul's not saying he has a choice in the matter, and he didn't know if he was going to be released from prison. He didn't actually know. He had some sort of inner conviction, apparently, that he thinks he's going to be released, and the truth is he actually ended up being released. I don't know if he ever made it to Philippi, but he did. Because Apostle Paul is saying, in spite of the fact that that's what I want more than anything else. For the Christian, death isn't some death wish or some escapist plan to escape a miserable and terrible world. It's not. Because he knows I have this intimacy even today. It is present with me, and I have more work to do. That's why C.S. Lewis put it this way. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians 
begin the, who care about the most of the present world are just the ones that thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were apocapartied with Jesus in heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've actually become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get, the, get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Wow. Paul is not saying that he's some moral exemplar or some example for us. He's begging the question that we all should ask, how in the world did a death row inmate become one of the most impactful people the planet has ever seen? Google's top four most impactful people is a death row inmate that you're reading from 2,000 years ago. What kind of hope did he have? What message did he earnestly believe? It was anxious and persistent expectation set on living for Christ is what he had, and it is possible for every single one of us in this room. And the only way possible for us to have such a hope is to understand that Jesus For him, his most anxious and persistent expectation was bringing new life to us. When Jesus told his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He wasn't just talking about some sort of universal principle here. Jesus was talking about his death, his imminent death. Jesus was born on death row. Your Savior was born to die. Jesus was born to die. This is what he came to earth to do. Everything prophesied about him said, this is where it will lead for him. Arrested, detained, beaten, mocked, bloodied, spat upon, and then sentenced to be executed. And in the face of that, Jesus didn't just say, you know, Just do it. Let's get this over with. Read his death account, and Jesus drank to the very dregs of death, to the very bottom of it, to pay for every last bit of sin, which is spiritual death. The physical death that Jesus experienced on the cross was absolutely nothing to the spiritual death that Jesus endured so that you and I can actually have life. The only way possible that any of us could ever have a stunning disregard for physical death is to understand the greater death that Jesus has endured for every single one of us here that we won't ever have to face if you trust him. Jesus Christ is the seed that went into the ground and in order to bear much fruit. And we are his fruit, and his life is poured out for ours. Father, as we continue through this series, which will continue to bring up uncomfortable themes or (laughs) things that just feel morose, that is just simply not true. This is the great story that has stood the test of time. And all because of this, Lord, you have defeated death. You've brought the needed death in our lives for those who follow you to bring new life, new creation. And the promise for all of us here is that whatever we are facing today, that this hope is true. It is actually real, and it can be ours if we allow it to take hold of our lives. 
to stand up to all the graves and the crosses and everything else that life wants to throw at us. We pray that, Lord, I just pray through this whole series that this joy would become real, it would be felt. We ask these things in your name. Amen.